You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 13th day of February, 2011. I'd like to welcome you all back to the podcast and, as always, invite all of you to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other websites that The Corbett Report supports. Now, first off this week, I'd like to apologize to those who are waiting for the latest edition of the New World Next Week to come out this last Thursday and did not see it arrive, and that's because I was completely out of commission for three days with a bout of food poisoning and was not able to work on the website at all, in fact, barely even logged into my email, a sure sign of the apocalypse if ever there was one, so... Once again, uh, my apologies to everyone, but of course the videos and uh, the podcast and everything is returning to its normal schedule, so there should be no further interruptions, assuming there are no further bouts of food poisoning. But uh, on that note, of course, anyone who uh, did contact me earlier this week and was expecting some sort of reply, I'm sorry, but I really was unable to reply for a few days, so I'm now uh, running a bit behind in my correspondence, and uh, once again, please accept my apologies, and I will try to get back to anyone who was expecting a reply uh, earlier this week. Having said that, I would like to announce a new and exciting way to get New World Next Week and the other videos provided by Corbett Report, and that is on your TV. Or at least if you live in Europe and happen to have Sky TV and you have Sky Channel 201, you can now tune in Friday nights at 7pm, UK time I assume, in order to check out New World Next Week and Sunday Update and the best of The Corbett Report, i.e. past videos from The Corbett Report YouTube channel. And they are now being broadcast on Sky Channel 201 by ParadigmShift.tv. And uh, that's an incredible uh, step forward. And now that we're being broadcast, I'd like to thank ParadigmShift.tv for their work in getting this to air. So thanks to them. And please check out their website and to find out more information, including other ways to tune in, including in Europe, if you have access to the Astra Eurobird satellites, there's information about tuning in. But at any rate, there it is on Sky Channel 201. You can now watch New World Next Week and Sunday Update and other Corbett Report videos every Friday night at 7 p.m. So thank you once again to ParadigmShift.tv for that. And a link will be going up in the link section uh, shortly on CorbettReport.com. And on a final housekeeping note this week, as regards to the decision to take Sunday Update out of the podcast and make it its own separate entity, well, out of the tens of thousands of people who are downloading this podcast on a weekly basis, I have this week received a grand total of two emails on the subject, one in favor and one opposed. So again, until further notice, I am going to be taking Sunday Update out of the podcast and will you will be able to obviously access that on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Corbett Report. There will be a link obviously on the front page of CorbettReport.com to go to uh, sundayupdate.blip.tv where you can watch it there. There will also be a link in the dynamic content gallery in the front of CorbettReport.com so you can watch it on the Corbett Report page There are numerous different ways to watch Sunday Update, so I hope you're still getting Sunday Update, even though it's not any longer in the podcast. Although, if there are, again, if there is a significant backlash, I will put it back into the podcast. But at any rate, let's get straight into today's episode. 
Welcome, my friends, to episode 175 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Rand Corporation Exposed. Well, what is the Rand Corporation? Well, let's turn to Rand.org for more information about this nonprofit think tank that many people have heard about, but few people really know what it is or what it does. And on Rand.org, you can go to About Rand and click on History and Mission to read the following about Rand's mission. The Rand Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Rand focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and business, the environment, and more. With a research staff consisting of some of the world's preeminent minds, Rand has been expanding the boundaries of human knowledge for more than 60 years. As a nonpartisan organization, Rand is widely respected for operating independent of political and commercial pressures. Through our dedication to high-quality and objective research and analysis, and with sophisticated analytical tools developed over many years, Rand engages clients to create knowledge, insight, information, options, and solutions that will be both effective and enduring. And you can scroll down a little bit further to read about a brief history of Rand, where you'll find this. It was on May 14, 1948, that Project Rand, an outgrowth of World War II, separated from the Douglas Aircraft Company of Santa Monica, California, and became an independent, nonprofit organization. Adopting its name from a contraction of the term research and development, the newly formed entity was dedicated to furthering and promoting scientific, educational, and charitable purposes for the public welfare and security of the United States. Almost at once, Rand developed a unique style, blending scrupulous nonpartisanship with rigorous fact-based analysis to tackle society's most pressing problems. Over time, Rand assembled a unique core of researchers, notable not only for individual skills, but also for interdisciplinary cooperation. By the 1960s, Rand was bringing its trademark mode of empirical, nonpartisan, independent analysis to the study of many urgent domestic, social, and economic problems. Etc., etc., etc. And if you would like to read more of the palatable pap and pablum available at the Rand website, by all means, please, I urge you to go to rand.org and find out all about their self-congratulatory glad-handing and self-backslapping about their 60-plus years of incredible dynamic research and all that pimply hyperbole, which you no doubt are probably sick of if you're anything like me, but at any rate, it is all there for your perusal. And why not? Because if we do not better understand what it is we're opposing, we will never be able to properly oppose it. So why are we opposing the Rand Institute, especially with uh, such incredibly uh, important and and valuable research that Rand and its various uh, think tank gurus have spewed out over the decades, including According to this sidebar on Rand.org, how Rand invented the post-war world, almost all of the defining features of the information age were shaped in part at the Rand Corporation, and it gives links to satellites and systems analysis and computing and the internet and and all sorts of other goodies that are available. And as as they do say, they they put out studies on all sorts of things from does watching sex on television influence teens' sexual activity to when terrorism hits home, how prepared are state and local law enforcement to the cost of crime calculator and all sorts of uh, myriad other things that th- this Rand Corporation tackles. 
And again, the question is raised, why on earth would anyone be opposed to this? It's a scrupulously nonpartisan think tank that's just providing studies that are commissioned, obviously, by governments and other uh, corporate actors to find out more about what's going on and the possibilities of how things will play out. What could be possibly wrong with that? Well, I guess we'll have to leave the RAND.org website and the, uh, the, shall we say, politically correctified version of the RAND history and all the wonderful things that they've contributed to to find out some of the, well, not-so-nice nice things that they've contributed to and left as a legacy on this planet, more like a scourge that has haunted us for decades, over half a century now. And for that, let's turn to a work of fiction. You mean people could actually stay down there for a hundred years? It would not be difficult, my Fuhrer. Nuclear reactors could... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. President. Nuclear reactors could provide power almost indefinitely. Greenhouses could maintain plant life. Animals could be bred and slaughtered. A quick survey would have to be made of all the available mine sites in the country. But I would guess... That uh, dwelling space for several hundred thousand of our people could easily be provided. Well, I'm, I would hate to have to decide who stays up and who goes down. Well, that would not be necessary, Mr. President. Could easily be accomplished with a computer. And the computer could be set and programmed to accept factors from youth, health, sexual fertility, intelligence, and a cross-section of necessary skills. Of course, it would be absolutely vital that our top government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. <laughs> Actually, they would breed prodigiously, eh? There would be much time and little to do. <laughs> but uh, with the proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, Ten females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years. But look here, Doctor, wouldn't this nucleus of survivors be so grief-stricken and anguished that they'd, well, envy the dead and not want to go on living? No, sir. Excuse me. Also, when, when they go down into the mine, everyone would still be alive. There will be no shocking memories. And the prevailing motion will be one of nostalgia for those left behind. Combined with a spirit of bold curiosity for the adventure ahead. <laughs> oh, and you thought that Dr. Strangelove was just a funny little movie about purity of essence and making fun of those crazy people who believe that sodium fluoride is bad for you. But no, it's actually so much more, and it was, of course, based on real people in real situations who came up with real craziness. And uh, craziness that, that can't really be comprehended by the sane, like you and me, but unfortunately nonetheless exists and has to be dealt with and confronted in some way. And Kubrick did it by trying to make fun of it mercilessly with his excellent Dr. Strangelove, the classic movie. But it is nonetheless actually based on real people who had real ideas about surviving and winning nuclear wars. And for more on this, we'll take it uh, some 
information about uh, the one of the real-life bases for Dr. Strangelove, Herman Kahn of the Rand Corporation. And uh, we'll take some information about Herman Kahn's doomsday machine from an article by the same name at a website, tracearchive.ntu.ac.uk. And I'll read from that article, quote, While working at RAND, Herman Kahn settled in with a group working on nuclear strategy known as the Strategic Objectives Committee. Its members recognized that an all-out nuclear war with an initial strategy to attack cities was not feasible. In response to such a strategy, Kahn, only half-jokingly, proposed his Doomsday Machine, a massive computer connected to a stockpile of hydrogen bombs. When the computer sensed imminent and intolerable danger from a Soviet attack, it would detonate the bombs and cover the planet with radiation fallout and billions of dead. No one laughed, except for Stanley Kubrick, whose 1964 dark comedy Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, parodied Khan's doomsday device. The doomsday machine, nonetheless, was only a mildly absurd version of existing U.S. policy. If the Soviets scare us, we destroy their cities and provoke them to retaliate. Khan advanced the strategist's thinking to a new level by suggesting military installations as the next logical target. This work led Khan to believe that there could be such a thing as a winnable nuclear conflagration. Khan began working intensely with the massive computers at Rand's disposal. Modeling nuclear wars for Strategic Operations Committee, Khan proposed a variety of simulations that he claimed proved his theories. At the same time, his work had such persuasive, albeit paranoid, force that it became the basis for the majority of military strategy during the Cold War. Khan believed that any war plan ought to contain a variety of responses. The war had to be controlled so that intra-war deterrence might be practiced to prevent escalation of the conflict. Conceiving of 44 rungs of escalation from ostensible crisis to barely nuclear war, from justifiable counterforce attack to local nuclear war, Khan saw himself as the great systematizer of nuclear strategies. To control a conflict, the military needed what Khan called a credible first-strike capability, so that they could suppress Soviet strategic forces in the event that conventional forces failed. Khan labeled the pure deterrent capability as Type 1, a first-strike capability as Type 2, and the retaliatory deterrent as Type 3. These many types of deterrence, variations on possible escalation scenarios, along with many other variables, were calculated. Using this data in a modified Prisoner's Dilemma simulation, based on von Neumann's game theory, Kahn modeled nuclear wars to determine U.S. nuclear vulnerability. If the Soviet aggressor is reasonable, he will avoid the defender's cities, civilians, and recuperative capability in order to maximize his post-attack blackmail threats. For example, given a Type 1 deterrence, a rational competitor would most likely attack military bases while keeping a reserve as threat to destroy cities afterwards. Khan was not advocating a preventive war, but was calling for first use in the face of conflicts that could not be deterred otherwise. As a result, Khan called for a buildup of missiles, bombers, and limited war forces, as well as a massive civil defense program. End quote. Well, indeed. In fact, I'll even throw a link into one of Khan's detailed diagrams. Well, not really diagrams, but his uh, his 
systematization of the different levels of, uh, of nuclear war, and uh, you can take a look at that and parse it for what it's worth. But again, these are the scrawlings of madmen with mad thoughts who unfortunately were put in very much in the driver's seat in the conflict of, well, I guess what could have been potentially the most important conflict in the history of humanity with the ability to end humanity at any moment. And thus the Cold War mentality was really born, hatched, and grown to fruition at RAND. And uh, the RAND Corporation's impact on Cold War thinking and strategies and and the entire uh, Cold War defense system of the United States cannot be overstressed. So on that basis alone, I think Rand Corporation is extremely worthy of our attention. But unfortunately, it goes much deeper, because the paranoia that's absolutely incumbent in such ideas of winnable nuclear wars and all of the insane planning that went on, unfortunately was not confined to the military arena, as terrible as that would have been. Unfortunately, it was used to try to shape our entire view of society itself, with some far-reaching and, of course, untoward results. Well, what am I referring to? Well, in order to start thinking about how a think tank can actually shape society instead of merely describing it, we'll start today by examining a brief clip from an Adam Curtis BBC documentary, The Trap. This documentary first aired on BBC Two in 2007, and it follows and traces the arc of the idea that began as a kernel in the Rand Corporation and among the paranoid minds of that think tank, and eventually came to, in Adam Curtis's view, dominate much of Western civilization. And it's an extremely interesting documentary, so let's listen to a clip from the first episode of this documentary. And it relates the ideas of game theory and the nuclear balance of terror that Rand Corporation's think tank gurus came up with. And tells us a little bit about a charming little game that one of Rand's probably most well-known figures invented called Fuck You, Buddy. This is the heart of a giant blast-proof bunker 30 miles north of New York. Built in the late 50s, it housed the largest computer in the world, linked to a system of radars around the world, which constantly watched the Soviet Union. Every second, thousands of pieces of information poured into this room to be analysed for signs of danger. The nuclear strategists who had designed this system knew they were dealing with a completely new type of conflict. Neither side could let it get out of control because of the terrifying consequences. So the strategists wanted to find a way of using the information to anticipate what the Soviets might be about to do. And to do this, they turned to a new idea called Game Theory. Game Theory had been developed as a way of mathematically analysing poker games. It looked at the game as a system where the players are locked together, each trying to work out what the other thinks they will do. From that, Game theory showed rationally what the best moves were for each of the players. This is a type of war that had never been fought before. And of course, as we all know, it would be so devastating that it's almost impossible to consider all of its consequences. They still wanted to say that there was a rational way to approach such a virtual war. And game theory seemed to offer that to them, that you could, in a sense, incorporate your enemy into your own thinking 
that you could mathematically understand what your enemy would do to the point where you and your enemy will play the exact same uh, set of strategies. The Center for Developing Nuclear Strategy was a military think tank called the RAND Corporation. And the strategists at RAND used game theory to create mathematical models that predicted how the Soviets would behave in response to what they saw the Americans doing. Out of this came the fundamental structure of the nuclear age. Hundreds of missiles protected in silos underground. And fleets of bombers in the air 24 hours a day. Just as in a game, they were strategic moves to convince the Soviets that if they attacked, America would always have enough missiles to destroy them in return. And in the rules of this game, fear and self-interest stopped the Russians from attacking. And it created a stable equilibrium called the delicate balance of terror. Recommending missiles underground, missiles and submarines and all that was a way of making that much more stable. Sometimes the way I used to explain it is we're trying very hard to reduce the likelihood of nuclear war by creating powerful incentives for the Russians not to, to start a nuclear war because we're trying to give them incentives not to attack either with a nuclear attack or with a conventional attack. Yeah, so incentives are important to them. Underlying game theory was a dark vision of human beings who were driven only by self-interest, constantly distrustful of those around them. And there was a mathematician at the Rand Corporation who would take this dark vision much further. He set out to show that one could create stability through suspicion and self-interest, not just in the Cold War, but in the whole of human society. He was the mathematical genius, John Nash. Nash was portrayed in the Hollywood film, A Beautiful Mind, as a tortured hero. In reality, Nash was difficult and spiky. He was notorious at Rand for inventing a series of cruel games. The most famous he called Fuck You, Buddy, in which the only way to win was to ruthlessly betray your game partner. Nash took game theory and tried to apply it to all forms of human interaction. To do this, he made the fundamental assumption that all human behavior was exactly like that involved in the hostile, competitive world of the nuclear standoff. That human beings constantly watched and monitored each other, and to get what they wanted, they would adjust their strategies to each other. In a series of equations for which he would win the Nobel Prize, Nash showed that a system driven by suspicion and selfishness did not have to lead to chaos. He proved that there could always be a point of equilibrium in which everyone's self-interest was perfectly balanced against each other. The equilibrium, this equilibrium which is used, is that what I do is perfectly adjusted in relation to what you are doing. And what you're doing, or what any other person is doing, is perfectly adjusted to what I'm doing or what all other people are doing. They're seeking separate optimization, just like poker players. Is each player alone? That's the idea, that they are alone, they're separate. Doing something that's very non-cooperative, but very selfish.
and then what all of them do works together and there's deriving from that there is a payoff to all the players that is the equilibrium but it's understood not to be a cooperative ideal Hmm, charming little game, isn't it? Well, indeed. So that, I think, gives an idea of the mentality that the Rand Corporation bred, fostered, encouraged, and promoted, and helped to bring to prominence in some of the, well, seats of power in the Western military-industrial hierarchy-slash-complex that was really, again, invented and fostered by the Rand Corporation. So, it's all one big incestuous circle, unfortunately, and it really fed on itself and continues to do so as the Rand Corporation's tentacles continue to extend into, well, every corner of our society. And how does it do so? Well, you are, of course, invited to go and check into the rest of The Trap by Adam Curtis. And I do recommend his documentaries because they are always compelling and full of very interesting information and details. But I would caution against taking them solely at face value. And I think some people tend to get a little bit too overexcited in their enthusiasm for Adam Curtis and his various documentaries without realizing that at base, when you really strip away the veneer, Adam Curtis seems to be one of the most, the most doctrinaire and conservative thinkers that he really seems to take at face value the idea that the neocons really wanted to spread democracy to the world. That's what they really wanted to do. And, and yes, they had all these horrible ways of doing it, but that's what they're actually trying to do. And of course, it's a bad thing, but there's, there's nothing going on below the surface in Adam Curtis documentaries. 9-11 was unproblematically unprobla- committed by Al-Qaeda, which even he, in The Power of Nightmares, makes a compelling case, doesn't really exist as an organization. And yet it was unproblematically the result of Islamists, as was 7-7, which was unproblematically blowback, which was unproblematically created by unproblematic neocons who were unproblematically trying to spread democracy to the world. It's a very, very deeply doctrinal conservative thinking uh, and taking all face uh, all politics at face value so again i really encourage people to to uh, watch adam curtis's documentaries with with a bit of a an one eye closed or one eye squinting very very carefully at what you're watching because i think he he twists the truth and and puts it into a, a fairy tale cartoon version of reality that's really much beneath his audience and i think unfortunately a lot of the audience doesn't pick up on that so that's just my caveat although of course i think uh, the first episode of the century of the self was one of the uh, the greatest pieces of documentary filmmaking i've i've seen in my life so again i i absolutely think he has some remarkable talents. I just wish he would put them to better use. But at any rate, that's Adam Curtis, and that's not today's topic. Today we're talking about the Rand Corporation. So getting back to that topic, we are, of course, examining the ways in which the Rand Corporation and its Cold War mentality helped to shape the entire society that we now know and live and breathe and take for granted as as much as the air around us. And how did that happen, and what does that really mean? Well, in order to start answering that, we're going to turn to a researcher who is, in fact, the only journalist who has ever been permitted into the archives of the Rand Corporation in California to research the archives and, well, basically report on what he found. 
And given that incredible free reign, uh, absolutely unprecedented, he did not produce the expected whitewash. He actually produced, well, a very interesting book that really exposes the Rand Corporation for what it is. And, of course, I'm referring to Alex Abea, whose book Soldiers of Reason people might be familiar with because they may have listened to episode 173 of this podcast where we played the audio of an Alex Abea interview with Infowars.com in which he talked about his book and the Rand Corporation. Or you may be familiar with the interview that I recently conducted, just uh, yesterday, actually, as I record this, uh, with Alex Abea himself. And now we're going to turn to a clip from that interview. So, once again, people can find out more information about Alex Abea and his work at alexabea.com. But right now, let's turn to an excerpt from my conversation with Alex Abea, where we talk more about the Rand Corporation and what it really represents, and how it has shaped our modern world. But in any case, Rand what it developed something called uh, a number of things, about many, many things. But the two main contributions were something called systems analysis, which is a way of um, discovering the solution to problems by focusing on what your wanted result is instead of what your available tools are. Because usually the way that things have been uh, decided, especially the government, is like these are, the, these are our assets, and how much can we get out of them? Brand turned that around and, and, and put it, on its head and said, no, 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 what we want is to get here to point X. In order to get to point X, what is it that we have to do in order to achieve that particular uh, purpose, uh, which is something that had never been done in government. So that's one thing that they came up with. And the other thing that they came up with was, as I, guess, as I said before, rational choice theory, in which, po- which posits that uh, you know, we're all selfish human beings and there's no such thing as religion, altruism, or patriotism, which of course is completely antithetical to everything that the Viet Cong and many patriotic Americans believe in, but that's what they believed in at the time. And as a result of that, that became that theory became then the foundation for the financial uh, deregulation of markets uh, and for the repeal of, of many of the regulations that had kept Wall Street and banks in check, ultimately resulting the, the Glass-Steagall Act, uh, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, and uh, you know, to the financial mess that we find ourselves in today. So really, I mean, it's it's an incredibly wide range of, of things that, that uh, Rand has impacted on, from not only military, but also, I mean, every aspect of our lives, really. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, if if you believe that everybody is in, uh, if you believe that everybody is self-centered, there is no such thing as altruism. Uh, then, therefore, there's no such thing as patriotism. Obviously, because politicians and some people will perhaps agree with this, but I, I'm kind of old-fashioned, and I think that not everybody's like this. Uh, then you will think that all politicians are only empowered to enrich themselves or for self-glorification, and that nobody is there really uh, to uh, do uh, what's best for the people. Uh, so therefore, you know, that's only like very, that's a very small step before, uh, to, from there to Ronald Reagan's famous, you know, the government is the problem. Uh, which is funny because considering that he ran for president, he wanted to be in charge of the problem, which is he would be responsible for the problem. He doesn't make. <laughs> that's, that's, that's getting a little bit too complicated even for me. But the point being that if you don't 
believe that there is anything, there's any kind of non-selfish drive in human beings, then what happens is that all your ask, all your view of civilization, of, uh, of, of your daily life, is altered. Therefore, uh, you are no longer a citizen with rights and responsibilities, but you're only a consumer with choices. Choices, by the way, that you yourself don't make, that they're just given to you. You become then a passive receptor of all these things that are force-fed into you by corporations. In uh, in a way, I can't blame the people who came up with this. And by the way, there was a Nobel Prize-winning economist named Kenneth Arrow, um, because in a way, they were trying to react to the danger posed by communism. Most people alive today are not aware that at the end of the World War II, I mean, a lot of people in the intelligentsia really thought that um, Western democracies uh, were doomed and that our way of, of living was uh, not going to last and that the way for the future did belong to the communists and the socialist bloc. Of course, they were totally mistaken, obviously. But that's the way that people thought, so they had to come up with something that would justify philosophically uh, and especially from a rigorous mathematical point of view, which is the way that Rand looked at things, um, our existence and our very way of being. So therefore, you know, it was no longer then uh, the Harvard School of Government became Harvard School of Policy, then became policies because policies because each different party is, is uh, pushing its own agenda because nobody's thinking of everybody as a whole. Uh, all as a result of this one particular theorem that was developed by Mr. Arrow at, at Rand. And Rand was like the the center of um, of that of that particular uh, uh, line of thought, and it's 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 influenced each and every single Nobel Prize for economics that has been awarded in the last forty years. They've all taken as a, as, a, as a foundation, as its base, that we are almost economicus, that we are all selfish creature, creatures, and that therefore we have to react accordingly, and that the only thing that we react to are financial stimuli, uh, which is, I think, not quite true. Well, you, you raise a very intriguing and important point there, because if, if it all does boil down to us as individuals defined as consumers, just given a, a bunch of choices and those choices being predefined and pre-limited for us so that uh, society can be shaped in a certain direction, then what does that say about the Rand Corporation itself, which is really, really on the surface only presenting uh, case studies or, or looking into certain possibilities, but simply by looking into certain possibilities, aren't they in a way shaping the course of society? Not only that, my friend, you first have to remember that he who frames the argument has already won half of it. If you shape the question, you can, to a very large degree, influence the answer, because it will be the answer to the question that you pose. So therefore, just by making a particular deliberate choice of the arguments that are to be taken into consideration, you're already framing the answer, A. But B... It goes beyond that because, for instance, that's what the Brookings Institution does. Brookings Institution is another think tank that was that that, that was founded in the 1920s uh, that never did have as much influence as Rand, and it's only been now in, under the Obama administration that they finally found their own voice, and a lot of the people have gone into the Obama administration, whereas for, you know, for decades before it was Rand, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld going from the, bar, the Rand Board of Trustees to, to head the Pentagon. But be that as it may, one of Rand's tenets is that they, no longer, they don't only 
they not only uh, frame the question and tell you what is the right question to ask of any one particular problem. And many, many Iran scientists and researcher uh, and uh, executive has, has, has come up to me and, you know, stated quite proudly that, uh, you know, they are notorious for that, that a client may come to them with a particular problem and they say, well, this is what we want the answer to. And they would say, no, 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 you're looking at the wrong set of facts. This is the question that you should ask and this is the answer that you should, that you should hear. Be that as it may. Not only do they do that, they also then go out of the way to make sure that the policy makers in the U.S. government get that information. And that is the crux of the matter and the heart of their responsibility. A responsibility which today, to this date, they deny any part of. What do I mean by that? I mean that, the, um, for instance, let us look at Vietnam, in which they came up with something called the Vietcong Study, in which they they saw how the Viet Cong in reality were not driven by um, selfish motives, but actually were idealistic actors uh, who were really wanted to just wanted just the best for the family and for the country. They submitted that, but then when it was denied, when the, the, the Johnson administration decided not to pay attention to it, then they turned around and then just started feeding other arguments such as, well, bombing the Viet Cong then would actually be good because then that, even if it kills the villagers, then the villagers will not turn against the U.S., but will turn against the Viet Cong for having provoked the bombing that wiped their villages. That kind of contorted uh, Byzantine logic that was exactly what the administration wanted to hear. My point being is that they come up with, their, they frame the question, they give you an answer that perhaps you hadn't even thought of, and then they make sure that the people who can implement that particular policy listen to it and, and put it into effect. So that's what makes them doubly responsible. Not only that, what you have to also bear in mind is that RAN is the birthplace of what today is called the military-industrial complex. It comes out directly out of people in RAN and affiliated with RAN in the late 1950s. Well, from what I understand, um, uh, uh, the, it was people affiliated with RAND who were feeding information to the Kennedy administration or the uh, incumbent Kennedy administration at the time about a possible missile gap with the Soviets that, uh, that Kennedy used yes. to campaign to get into power. That's correct. And there was a missile gap that never existed. Uh, and that was the deliberate choice on their part. Uh, it, but the, they also came up with a, with a report before uh, called the Gator Report, uh, again, you know, after Gator, uh, who was uh, the first president of the Ford Foundation, who had been the uh, legal advisor to RAND when it, inco when it incorporated, and, was, and which report it, uh, it, it advised the Eisenhower administration that we were falling behind the Soviet Union in terms of armaments, and nuclear capabilities, and that the Soviet Union still exhibited uh, an uncontrollable desire to basically take over the world. And, uh, you know, and they argued for increasing the Pentagon budget. Uh, and Eisenhower looked at it and he said, no, I'm not going to do this, uh, because it, one of the things that it advocated is, you know, nuclear preparedness, saying we can survive a nuclear war. And, of course, one of the major figures that went around at that time, a scientist named Herman Kahn, uh, was going, out, going around the country, you know, giving lectures, saying that, you know, even if, if only uh, a third of the population survives, that we will have won. We'll come out of our tunnels, we'll come out of our caves, and if we have defeated the enemy, we will have won. 
which of course is a hollow victory. And, and Eisenhower said himself, you know, there won't be enough shovels to be able to bury all the dead. So Eisenhower wanted to A, bring down the Pentagon budget, and B, reach some kind of compromise with the Soviets. But these people just raised the alarms all the time, and uh, they uh, they. They released these, this secret report, they released it to the media, and, and they, uh, they really just made, gave all this false information to, to Kennedy, knowing full well that it was false, or at least tendentious, because they wanted that Pentagon budget to be increased, so they will profit. RAND will profit because they will get more contracts, and all the people who are on the RAND board will profit because all the industries will profit with the increase in Pentagon uh, spending. It's... it's terrible, but that's the way it was. Once again, Alex Abea of the author of Soldiers of Reason, and I'll put a link to that in the documentation section for today's episode. But once again, I would like to stress just how important that point is, that our society can be shaped by the people who claim to be solely describing it. That is to say, if you get to frame the question and then provide the possible range of answers to that question, you then control the debate to such a degree that you can actually steer society in one direction or another. And I think we're all familiar in broad terms with how that can be accomplished, say, in the media, when the debate becomes not about whether we should invade Iraq or not, but how many troops should we send, or uh, in what way should we send them. When when the debate gets framed in a certain way, suddenly the issue and the one that everyone is talking about and everyone parrots as part of their natural human reaction to the discourse they see taking place around them becomes one that is completely shaped, controlled, and framed by the corporate controllers who own the media. And that's, again, something that I I know my listeners are familiar with by now, and a very simple uh, concept, but still For all its simplicity, it's one that we often, including myself, take for granted and don't really consider. So how can a mere think tank like Rand Corporation shape our society and steer us in one direction or another? Well, simply by concentrating on this or that problem, by framing this or that problem in this or that way, or providing this, this, and this as answers to this problem, they can actually shape the way that we understand and thus the way that we conduct ourselves in the modern world. So, what are some examples of the ways in which Rand does this? Well, one particularly interesting example from recent years is uh, Rand's recent focus on homegrown terrorism and the threats of homegrown terrorism and homegrown terrorists being radicalized and um, to serve the non-existent al-Qaeda and perform their horrible deeds for them. Indeed, well, Rand's focus on this particular research area was directly responsible for the absolutely unbelievable, unbelievably horrible Homegrown Terrorism Prevention Act of 2007, which passed the House with a whopping 400 to 6 vote on November 20th of 2007. And on that day, Democracy Now! had some guests on to discuss how Rand Corporation was very much responsible for this legislation. When I started to look into this bill, what I found was a great influence by the Rand Corporation, which is a government-affiliated think tank. And um, twice, Brian Michael Jenkins, who's an expert on terrorism, gave testimony in the House 
on this He's film. He's from Rand. He's from Rand, yes. And they, they largely tried to push this bill through uh, on this idea that there are these extreme political Islamists in our country, and they, they didn't do a very good job stating the, uh, the actual threat. But when you look through the Rand Corporation's other reports, um, in 2005 they had a report called Trends in Terrorism, and they had one chapter called Homegrown Terrorism Threats. And when you look in that chapter, there's nothing about political Islamists. In fact, it's all about anti-globalization um, people on the right and left side of the spectrum, the animal rights and the environmental movements, and anarchists. And to me, I found that very interesting that that testimony was not mentioned at all when this bill was passed, that this, that this legislation is not just going to look at so-called violent uh, religious people, but also people who have uh, very strong opinions against this administration. In terms of the RAND Corporation, uh, it was Daniel Ellsberg who worked for the RAND Corporation uh, when uh, he had that um, many thousands of pages on the history of uh, Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers. So RAND is the key, what would you say, um, writer of the bill um, and the Congress member who's most involved in this? Right. Representative Jane Harmon, a Democrat from California, has had a lengthy relationship with the RAND Corporation. And I called several times to get comment from the RAND Corporation, and they said that all of their experts are out of town and unavailable due to the holidays. So I didn't find out if they indeed did write the bill themselves. Um, but what we do know is that they have a great influence and that they have had in the past. Colonel Franklin, yes. I just wanted to add to the RAND comment, uh, particularly with uh, Brian Michael Jenkins, uh, suppose a terrorist expert who's mainly known, according to Rand, as someone who helped uh, the United States in counterinsurgency measures in Vietnam, uh, which is one of his claims to fame. In addition to that, he wrote a book, and in his own book, I just want to quote a uh, passage. It says, in their international campaign, the jihadists will seek common ground with leftists, anti-American and anti-globalization forces who are in turn see radical Islam comrades against a mutual foe. So I, I think, once again, what Jessica's talking about is that this, the breadth of it is not focused in on supposed terrorists who are threatening the United States, but folks who have real concerns about where this country is heading, uh, folks who express dissent in various different ways, including demonstrations and marches, and that these are the folks who this bill potentially could target. The Baltimore Sun has a column called Here Comes the Thought Police. Mm -hmm. What do you mean thought police? I think they're saying thought because one of the important aspects of this bill also is that it concentrates on the Internet as a place where uh, terrorist rhetoric or, or uh, ideas have been coming across to the United States and to American citizens. So if, once again, this bill uh, reaches uh, to become a law and a study is done, who's to say that now after the study is done, the recommendations won't get made to say let's curb how the Internet is being used. Let's put uh, filters on what gets to come into the country. Uh, we, you spoke a little bit about Al Jazeera's. Imagine if they take a look at this and how Al Jazeera's is viewed uh, as one particular area where say, well, let's stop that even from, I mean, they've stopped it from coming in over cable, but let's stop that from coming in over the Internet. And that could be happening to thousands of websites in the near future. So much of the war on terror paradigm and rhetoric has been shaped and fostered at the Rand Corporation, no surprise there. But 
the war on terror paradigm, as we all know, is a failing one, and one that the oligarchy is not using, promoting, or stressing nearly so much in this Obama hope and change administration as they were back in the good old Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld war criminal torture uh, paradigm back in 2000 to 2008. So the question obviously and inevitably becomes what's next and that's the type of question that we can most usefully ask while looking at something like the rand corporation which is very much involved in trying to shape the future that is coming and doing so by of course not only having access to the top officials and government uh, uh, minions in each administration but also by putting out these ridiculous, insane, mad reports of what will be possible 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, and having free reign to do so, and having some of the brightest minds in the world at their disposal to help them parse and crunch the numbers, because it all boils down to the numbers. Well, at this point, I will have to defer to each and every one of you, the tens of thousands of people out there listening to my voice directly and all of those who are indirectly affected by the Corbett Report as well, who will in some way receive this information and will in some way be spurred to start looking into this for yourselves because only as a decentralized collective of researchers all looking into our own particular fields of interest and, and things that we find interesting and are able to work on will we actually be able to, well really come together and make something much, much greater than the sum of the parts. But at any rate, I will leave it to all of you to begin researching into RAND and taking a look at the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of publications that are available completely for free off of their website. I mean, other than their classified stuff, which Alex Abea is the only person who's really gotten in, gotten out to talk about. But uh, other than their classified reports, there are tens of thousands of or millions of pages of of, uh, material that Rand has released. So obviously much too much for any one individual to go through, let alone myself uh, with all of the work that I do. But uh, I can only provide you examples of reports that I think are worth looking into. So just taking a look at one example of a report that I think is interesting for all of its various implications is called the global technology revolution bio slash nano slash materials trends and their synergies with information technology by 2015 and just reading from the uh, blurb for that uh, report Beyond the agricultural and industrial revolutions of the past, a global technology revolution is currently changing the world. This book discusses the broad, multidisciplinary, and synergistic trends in this revolution, including genomics, cloning, biomedical engineering, smart materials, agile manufacturing, nanofabricated computation devices, and integrated microsystems. And uh, reading just a a tiny section from that report on page 8-9, Broader Issues and Implications... Extant capabilities in genomics have already created opportunities, yet have generated a number of issues. As more organisms are decoded and the functional implications of genes are discovered, concerns about property and privacy rights for the sequencing will likely continue. The ability to profile an individual's DNA is already raising concerns about privacy and excessive monitoring. Examples include databases of DNA signatures for use in criminal investigations and the potential use of genetically-based health predispositions by insurance companies or employers to deny coverage or to discriminate. 
The latter may raise policy issues regarding acceptable and unacceptable profiling for insurance or unemployment. This issue is further worrisome because the exact code-to-function mechanisms that trigger many disease predispositions are not well understood. Issues may also arise if a strong genetic basis of human physical or cognitive ability is discovered. On the positive side, understanding a person's predisposition for certain abilities or limitations could enable custom educational or remediation programs that will help to compensate for genetic inclinations, especially in earlier years when their effects can be optimized. On the negative side, groups may use such analyses in arguments to discriminate against target populations, despite, for example, the fact that ethnic distribution variances of cognitive ability are currently believed to be wider than ethnic mean differences, aggravating social and international conflicts. End quote. Well, as I say, that's just a tiny section of one of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of reports that RAND releases and makes available on their website. But I think, I trust from that tiny section, you get an idea of the incredible implications and scope and breadth of these materials. Just in that one section alone, we've touched on the issues of DNA privacy and property, the idea of DNA databases and the use of databases in criminal proceedings, the potential for DNA and other databases to be used as part of medical records, and the potential problems thereof. And in the last part, oh, they start to talk about eugenics and uh, the problems that may arise if we find ways of improving or altering people's physical or cognitive abilities. Despite all the maze and mites that they employ in their rhetoric, it's obvious that they are taking for granted that this will happen, and that therefore the people in positions of power and positions to make legislation should be starting to think about these types of eventualities because, well, they're, they may happen. That is to say, they're going to happen. You better get ready for it. And again, that is how society can be shaped by these think tanks, which are only describing potential possibilities. And again, it's extremely interesting, this interplay, and it's extremely subtle and complex, and it is way too much to possibly get a complete handle on in one little podcast episode. But I trust that today we have at least dug up some of the corners of the cornerstones of the Rand Corporation and exposed it for what it is. And with such knowledge at your disposal, I trust that you can begin your own research into Rand and see what you can uncover. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. Sir! I have a plan. Monsieur! I can walk!
Please say hello to the folks that I know. Tell them I won't be long. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go.